Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, The Future of No-Till and Cover Crops with new NRCS Chief Matthew Lohr, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With their tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different planter attachment designs for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. In this episode, Lesseter Media President Mike Lesseter sits down for an exclusive one-on-one talk with the newly appointed 16th Chief of the NRCS, Matthew Lohr. A fifth-generation farmer, Lohr has spent many years working for the betterment of agriculture and stewardship on working lands. He has served as Virginia's Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Services in the Virginia House of Delegates and at Farm Credit of the Virginias. As a no-tiller who grows cover crops, Laura is uniquely positioned to help spread understanding and adoption of conservation farming practices across the country. Without further ado, here are Mike Lesseter and Matthew Lohr. Thank you for making the, the time here. I guess maybe one of the things our no-till audience will feel proud having you in this chair, and, and if, yeah. maybe you could just talk a little bit about your no-till cover crop background and yeah, real briefly how we got here. Sure. So I'm a fifth-generation farmer from the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, which is about 100 miles southwest of here in D.C. So I'm very fortunate to to be close enough that I can still get home on weekends and get home a, a night a week. I've got six kids. So there's a lot happening. My wife is the one who, <laughs> running a federal agency is easy compared to maintaining a household of six kids. But our farm's primarily, it's 250 acres, but primarily poultry. We raise about 800,000 broiler chickens a year for Pilgrim's Pride. And we usually background about 180 head of feeder cattle. And then the rest is in crops, corn, soybeans, uh, barley. And then we do 18 acres of sweet corn that we retail and sell all of it right there at the farm. In the Shenandoah Valley, Interstate 81 runs literally just right by our farm. So it's a visible farm and, you know, the the county and the city of Harrisonburg are about 150,000 combined. So there's a, a pretty big population base there connecting to the consumer agriculture as well. But yeah, I mean, I learned about conservation from my grandfather and my father. It's been something that they've always modeled. And honestly, I don't remember the last time that we've run a plow across our land. I mean, as as far back as I can remember, our farm has been no-till and been very proactive with planting cover crops and really strip cropping, crop rotation. Um, You know, we as a farmer have participated through NRCS programs in the past to equip and we have CSP. And uh, if you come to our farm, we have two signs that, that are on the fence at the entrance. One is where we place conservation easements on our farm in 2017, which I'm extremely proud of. And then the other one is a Clean Water Farm Award from our local Soil and Water Conservation District. So to bring that background into this position now, to be able to lead the agency 
is a real neat opportunity. Tell us about what you were working on yesterday and what that means for everyone who's paying close attention to the Farm Bill and conservation. The conservation standards, yeah. So one of the things, we have conservation practices. Um, basically, these are all of the things that are approved practices that farmers can implement on their farming operations. And so every so many years, we have to kind of do an update on that. And as part of the Farm Bill, they require us that we do an update. So basically, in order to do it officially, you have to list it with the Federal Register that puts it out there, makes it public, and then uh, farmers and stakeholders can comment on that. So they have until April 25th to submit comments to make any changes to our practices you know, things adapt and evolve over time. And so our conservation uh, practices, you know, it's good to review them and make sure if there's, if there's new ones we need to add or some that have kind of become outdated. Um, this week in D.C., there's a lot going on. It's our fly-in for the National Association of Conservation Districts. So a lot of those folks are in town visiting on the Hill. We have a lot of our new state conservationists are in town to do a week-long training, and so spent some time with them yesterday. We have a joint forestry team that's in town. We did an MOU, basically partnering with the Forest Service and NACD and NRCS and the work that we do together. And also, we're in the process of, of writing the rules and regulations for the Farm Bill. And so, as our work groups are working through that, they keep elevating certain issues that finally are to my desk. And then, so I'm getting ready to do our first briefing with the undersecretary on ASEP, which is our conservation easement program. So the thing about this job is most days that I'm in town, I have probably about 10 different meetings or events every hour in the day. And, and they range from the full spectrum. I had a, a meeting yesterday with some Indian tribal leaders. And so, I mean, there's no two days alike and there's no two issues alike. But uh, I love it. I mean, NRCS, it touches so many parts of not only the agricultural community, but when you look at disaster relief from hurricanes and tornadoes. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of work with watershed areas to, you know, protect groundwater. And uh, that's been very exciting with our program. So every day there's, it's a, a new adventure. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I got home on Friday and I was sitting there with my wife. We were laying there and I'm like, just thinking back on the week and the day and all of the different people that I'd met with and groups that I'd interacted with. And it's amazing the scope and diversity of, of what this agency does and who all it touches. You use no-till and cover crops on your own land. What has to happen for more of this to, to be embraced by the farm community? What's, what's holding it back right That's now? That's a great question. I really think that what needs to happen is, you know, good conservation makes good financial sense. But I think that, you know, the average age of our farming population is close to 60 years old and, and farmers by nature, are, they can be a little independent and sometimes they're a little resistant to change. And so I think until they can see that no-till farming or planting cover crops or, you know, getting a conservation plan on your farm, some people may see that as just an extra step or a, a burden. But really, when, when you can be a good environmentalist, I mean, it makes good financial sense. For your operation and i think that's really the key is helping them to see that yeah it's going to take a little work or maybe take a change in your thinking up front but it really does pay dividends uh, later on down the line and so it's it's having to, to be forward thinking so at nrcs i mean I, I love when we have our forward thinking progressive farmers that are excelling and they're willing to tell their story of course having field days and having them uh, speak at events and conferences I think is uh, extremely beneficial, 
But really a big part of, of what I want to see is just to really help get the word out. I was in Nebraska speaking a couple weeks ago, and as I was driving across the state, I was, I'll be honest, I was surprised at the number of farms that didn't have cover crops. And I asked the question, why? And I think there's lots of reasons why. And of course, this year it was, the season was much later, you know, with the wet weather and, and farmers were later getting their crops off. And so, I mean, I understand a lot of that too, but I think that, I think it's really, it just comes down to a lack of education for them to see that if you can really improve the quality of your soil health, it will pay pay dividends down the road. So Our view was that cover crops was a, maybe a gateway to reduce tillage. Mm-hmm. Would, would, would that be a fair yeah, I think so. I think so. Absolutely. And what we've seen too, you know, with cover crops is it really, you know, we don't irrigate much uh, where I live and we don't irrigate at all on our farm. But when you have that, that cover crop planted and you come into the spring, you don't have to disturb the soil, you know, spray and kill the cover crop. It really makes a big difference on on the moisture levels of the soil heading into in spring and summer too. And so for us where we don't have the option to provide water through irrigation, that's a big, big benefit as well. So yeah, I think they go hand in hand for sure. Our thought was maybe that there's some people that the, the idea of no-till being too maverick or too much of a, <laughs> a mindset change, that, but the cover crops, mm-hmm. they catch their attention and they go to strip till or some other yeah. minimum till. And I think honestly, once they try it one time and they see how successful it is, I mean, I think it's getting them to try it for the first time. But once they do it once and see how beneficial and how successful it can be, I think it really does begin to change the mindset. But, but you're right, I mean, farmers by nature are pretty traditional and they like the routine. The other encouraging thing is that, you know, there's a, a huge mass of young folks that are interested in coming into agriculture and we see it every day. Now, it may be a little different agriculture, you know, they've got more specialty or niche production or smaller scale or direct to consumer type operations, but there's an interest for that next generation. I speak a lot at beginning and young farmer conferences around the country, and nothing makes me more excited than seeing a group of 120-something, 30-something-year-old farmers. They're, they're very progressive in their thought process. They're very big on technology and precision agriculture, and their ability to experiment and find out what works best for them. It's exciting. It really is. I'm very optimistic about the, the next generation of farmers. Where would no-till, cover crops, strip-till fit in your priority list on what you're going to do in your your time here. Yeah, and I think really, take it one step further, comes down to soil health. I think for me, improving soil health is a big initiative for this agency. And and certainly all of those practices you mentioned really tie into that. If we're going to continue to, to be viable and be profitable, we have to start with the very basics. And that basics is how can we, you know, boost our organic matter and really improve that that health of the soil. And I think the more we can do through training and programs and incentives to start there, I think these other practices will kind of evolve out of that as well. But, but soil health is, is a big priority and um, it, it'll be a big initiative during my time here as chief. We had done an article on the, how a survey in, that Purdue had done in Indiana was they would need to see a $40 per acre incentive to switch from conventional till to no-till. Seems like a pretty big leap, doesn't it? Yeah, I haven't seen that study, but so that's that's what they concluded, about 40 bucks? That's what farmers told them mm-hmm. it would it would take to hmm. do that. And Interesting. Wondering what practically can be done to bridge that hmm. chasm. 
Well, I guess one of the things I would say, and, and again, I stress this to folks, is stop in at your local NRCS office. And we have 2,400 and some NRCS offices, the USDA government centers, and, and our, our soil conservationists and our district conservationists and our employees there. And many times there's partner agencies, whether it be a, you know, soil and water conservation districts or other outside folks that are there, um, and just talk to them. I mean, that's really how the process starts. Just take the first step to go in and say, I'm a farmer, this is my operation. And, and our folks are very happy to come out and just survey the land and take a look and walk through and look at their operation and then make suggestions and recommendations. Maybe they need some technical assistance, maybe put a conservation plan in place and then be able to match it up with one of our, our farm bill type programs. I can't speak specifically to that $40 quote, but I think that, I think with every operation it's different, but just to, to take that first step, go in and talk to someone and let them come out and see, and it, it may be much less than that. And so, and of course, we have cost share programs to help with these practices, which is very important. They don't have to do it alone. And, and many times the investment is going to produce much, uh, much bigger returns than what they have to invest. But again, it's just taking that first step. How effective have those cost share programs been from your, your oh, perspective? Oh, extremely effective. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've got the numbers right now. We have, well, with all of our programs at NRCS, we currently have 129,000 contracts with producers and, uh, you know, over a million, or I'm sorry, 100 million acres um, are have some type of, of program on them across the country. So, yeah, I mean, I think with anything in life, it's if you can have a cost share component. But I think it's important, too, that the farmer or rancher still has to have a little skin in the game. I mean, that's the advantage of cost share. And granted, for us, we're providing, in most cases, about 75% of, of the money. But yet the farmer still has that 25% responsibility. So I think with most things in life, it really, both sides have to be engaged. And, but I think even that 25% is, is a investment that will we'll provide dividends for them. But I, I think the cost share way of doing things is very important. And, you know, the flip side is if we don't take a proactive positive step, <laughs> you know, we do have water quality issues that we need to protect and, and soil health issues. But, you know, many of these will become regulatory issues if we don't do enough proactive work up front. And so, again, I'm a farmer that's been in the Chesapeake Bay watershed for, you know, for a long time, as long as that's been a hot issue. And so we've seen that regulatory issues surface. And so the more we can be proactive and and do voluntary efforts on our behalf will make things a lot easier down the road because the last thing you want is to be regulated to do to do certain things. Will those cost share programs, are they under, uh, under attack? Well, you know, the Farm Bill just passed, uh, signed into law, and Congress displayed that they have a, a strong commitment to conservation. I mean, most all of our programs received an increase in, in federal funds. No programs were created and no programs were taken away. So we're in the process now of kind of rewriting the rules and regulations to make them better. But yeah, I mean, there's a strong commitment. I mean, EQIP, especially that's our flagship program over the next five years. I mean, it's going to be up to $2 billion, I think even a little bit over $2 billion a year. So there's a strong commitment on behalf of, of Congress. And I love the view of the Capitol 
um, right out my, my window sometimes. It's, it's, it's kind of a neat symbolism that, you know, they supply the funds, but then we're given the task to administer these programs. And definitely there's a strong commitment um, from Congress and signed by the president to continue making conservation a top priority. So some of those like, like emails that I may have seen last night. The, With the president's budget? or Yeah, like, and that the, the conservation CRP ground could go right back into tillage and would let go everything, all the organic matter and benefits we've developed over yeah. the past 20 years. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that'll happen. Um, the president you know, released a budget this week, and in that, he's calling for cuts across the board. Again, that's the first step, certainly a budget has to be voted on by Congress. And I've also seen the comments from the leadership in Congress that you know, they didn't agree with a lot of the cuts that the president had in his budget. I mean, it's a process. So I guess I'm going off the assumption that the president signed the farm bill into law. Congress wrote the legislation, the president signed it. So that's their commitment towards conservation. We'll have to see as the, you know, the next budget process takes place. But I do know there is a strong, a strong desire to keep conservation at the forefront. And I think in the budget, there were some cuts to some USDA programs, but I really don't, from what I could tell, there weren't strong cuts to conservation programs. We'll rejoin the conversation in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different planter attachment designs for the planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Now let's get back to the conversation with Mike Lesseter and Matthew Lohr. Our estimate is that no-till has 107 million acres and seen numbers of maybe 145 million acres by 2030. Do you have any opinion on or thought on growth of no-till, strip-till, that sort of thing? Yeah, now, and again, I haven't, I can't speak specifically to those numbers, but I guess I can speak to the trend. Sure. And absolutely, I, I think that we will continue to see that trend continue. And again, it's proven to work. It's proven to be beneficial to the farmer. It's proven to be beneficial to the environment. Uh, to my knowledge, there are no known groups that are anti-no-till that are waging a campaign. So, and especially with the work that we're doing and the work that we're engaging, I, I will see that continually increase. I really do. It just it makes makes sense all the way around. So, I certainly would expect that number to continue to go up. I think it'll be steady. I would love to see it make even greater strides. But I, I, we are making progress, and we're going to continue to to do all that we can. And as farmers tell their neighbors and, and see demonstrations, I think it will definitely continue, especially when there's incentives and cost share monies associated. So hopefully it won't be slow, but I mean, I think we'll definitely be moving in the right direction. So when we were looking at, at the cover crops, um, the numbers that we had seen was about our audience of no-till, mm -hmm. there were like 79% were already using cover crops to some degree. That's great versus maybe 10% of the general farm population. Yeah. And so for cover crops to catch on with the mm -hmm. more conventional type of, of farmer, what, 
What do you think needs to happen? I would hope that they could see the financial benefits of it, that it really does pay, and especially if a farmer can truly see the importance of that soil health component, I think it'll begin to, to make a difference. But we provide cost-sheer dollars with it. So, I mean, it's, the investment they have is, is, is small compared to, to the cost. And so, I, again, trying to get farmers just to at least try it for the first time and, and see firsthand the results that they have on their farm. But, you know, what's, I know here at, uh, at NRCS, it's definitely a, a priority that we want to see continue. And, and we certainly do, do our best to promote and, uh, and tell the story and, and encourage folks to go talk to one of our technicians and conservationists and see what would work best for their operation. Carbon sequestration and in the, in the, how no-till keeps it mm -hmm. where we want it to be. How close do people understand that with regard to tillage? That's a great question. I would say within the agricultural community, it, it probably, we probably have some more homework to do. But with the general population and the non-farm community, I think they, maybe they see the benefits a little bit more. Uh, last week I had the chance to participate in a Politico environmental sustainability forum. That was a really neat honor to have a chance to, because it was a, a national broadcasted program and um, you know, Politico is a pretty big player. So for them to put this program together and really focusing on the work agriculture is doing, especially as it relates to climate change and uh, sequestration of carbon. I mean, I was proud to, to tell the story that good conservation does a long way towards helping control the climate change. And so there's a story to tell. I think, in my opinion, the non-ag sectors probably see that a little more than, I don't know how engaged the typical 60-year-old farmer in the Midwest is really engaged with the need for carbon sequestration, but clearly our conservation efforts are, are helping that and, and doing a good job. So I think there is a story to be told I think for, for a lot of farmers, we, we want to we wanna protect the environment, we want to remain profitable, and certainly the carbon sequestration is a component of that that also plays an important part. So it's possible that the general public is paying more attention to this subject than our own farm? Well, that would be my, my guess. I mean, I don't have any real proof of that, but I guess I don't hear a lot of farmers talking about the work that they're doing, say, with, with cover crops because it's going to increase carbon sequestration. I mean, I don't really hear that conversation much. It's happening, but I don't really hear that in conversation. But yet you do hear that a little more with the, the non-farm community and looking at agriculture and the role that it plays in the big picture. So I think that um, certainly that could be a component of an incentive to help our producers want to do more. Um, I think um, certainly there's some educational opportunities in that. When you look at the water, the water issue and, and no-till's role oh, in yeah. that, it's um, huge. What, come, what comes to mind? Well, it's huge. I mean, protecting soil runoff and, and sediment getting into our, our waterways, gosh, I mean, no-till and cover crops do so much to help reduce that. And so I think, again, we have two issues with water. I mean, you know, the folks in the West are really focused on water quantity and how do we conserve it. And then in other parts of, of the U.S., it's water quality and how can we make sure that the quality of that water and certainly reducing the, the phosphorus and the, the nitrogen leaching into the, into the waterways is a big part. But the sediment reduction is, is a very big component as well. 
And the less you disturb the soil, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir, the, the less you dis disrupt the soil, you know, the, the less soil erosion you're going to have. So I think that, that no-till farming and especially the use of cover crops go a long way towards being able to reduce that erosion and reduce the sediments that are taking place in our waterways. Precision agriculture is really, really exciting. And, and I was at the Pheasant Fest in Chicago a couple weeks ago and actually got to speak at the Precision Agriculture Workshop. But the technology is fascinating. As you know, when you can look at, a, say, a 100-acre field and the technology, you can see those parts of the field that are the most productive soils and those parts of the fields that are the least productive soils. And especially if you've got parts along the edges that really aren't productive, how you can partner with one of our programs, whether it's CRP or some wildlife enhancements or some pollinator options, and you can actually be compensated to do some enhancements on parts of your farm that you're really not making money if you're farming it, but yet you can also be paid and do some really neat enhancements that have great benefits as well, protecting the environment and improving habitat. I mean, there are so many things that we can do for farming operations. Um, I think a lot of folks probably aren't aware of the programs that are out there. So again, just encourage them to, to visit their district office and talk to someone and look at all the, the possible options that are out there. And in Precision Ag, I hadn't really even gotten into that. How do you feel about how fast the Precision Ag is moving and what it can do for soil conservation? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Now, again, now we're taking it another step forward, you know, but for those progressive farmers that have the technology, and it's, it's truly amazing to look at the computer technology. I mean, I mean you know, when you can monitor a field and see soil types and, and soil needs where the technology is there that can adjust the, how much fertilizer, or how much spray goes down to really make sure you can maximize production. It's, it's fascinating, I mean, what you can do, and especially taking those areas that maybe are the least productive parts of the ground and how you can, well, protecting the environment. I mean, maybe there's some land that's, you know, marginal wetland that, you know, you're not being productive with it, but you can put some of that land, maybe it's, a, you know, some type of CRP or easement on some grounds to take that out of production and then really enhance the wildlife capabilities of it by really focusing on the most productive parts. I mean, auto steer, for example, reducing the waste of overlap. I mean, it's, it, the list goes on and on that, uh, that the technology is there. But again, it's expensive and usually it's more of your larger operations that are really digging in, but it can really pay dividends to make farmers much more effective and, and much more resourceful of their uh, the resource. Could you tell us a little more about the crops, the no-till crops and cover crops that you have on your own? family's farm? Yeah, so in the big picture, it's a pretty small farm, 250 acres. And like I said, the poultry and the cattle are the, are the mainstays. But we have basically about 100 acres of pasture, hay ground, and about 100 acres of crop ground, give or take. And out of those 100 acres of crop ground, 20 acres is, is sweet corn that we pick and sell. So 80 acres, and it's typically been a rotation between corn, soybeans, and barley. Although now that I'm in this job, of course, with barley, uh, a big part is we square bale the straw and then sell the straw for that market. But this year with me in this position, I'm not there on the farm. So we decided not to plant barley this year because that's another whole component that overlaps with our sweet corn season. 
and without me there, it's just we've had to make some adjustments uh, for the temporary time being. But yeah, basically um, now we're going to be on a soybean corn rotation and we'll, we'll no-till both crops in the spring, harvest in the fall, follow with our cover crops following. For us, we've always done a barley cover crop and it's made sense because we plant barley, we harvest it, we hold some back then and use that for, for our cover crop, which when farmers are able to to plant the crops that they already grow as a cover crop, it's even more of a, a financial savings because you don't have the investment in purchasing the seed. But that's, that's the rotation. In the past, we had been engaged in agritourism where uh, we used to do uh, 15 acres of U-Pick pumpkins and corn mazes and really focus on that. Again, that's a huge investment of time and resources. And when I became the commissioner of agriculture in Virginia, I had to take a step away from the farming operation. And then some of those things, they're just too much to handle without me being there full time. So at some point, when I go back to being a full time farmer again, we might pick up some of those. But with the sweet corn, that's a really neat operation because our kids are all involved from picking in the morning to bagging to selling. And so they all have a role to play in that part of the business, which is fun. But, but yeah, so I mean, from a farming perspective, it's pretty simple, you know, corn, soybean rotation, nothing too fancy. I will say last year we did do seven acres of hemp. That's been all the, the, the rage this year with the farm bill, but Virginia passed a, a law a couple of years ago that there were targeted farmers that could partner with the local university to do research. And so James Madison University is, is in our hometown and they, were one of the universities selected. So there were about a half a dozen farmers that were in the valley that participated. So we planted seven acres last year. And again, with me being here, we decided not to participate in that again. But now that they're getting the rules and regulations written for hemp, I think it'll there'll be more and more farmers that have an interest and we taking advantage of that going forward. Again, it's another, it's another crop, another opportunity to try to find something that's will work into the rotation and, and be successful. I'm a fifth generation farmer and my hope is that we can instill a love in this next generation. I don't know if I'll have any full-time farmers or not, but at least they'll have an appreciation for, for the industry. And the fact that we've placed the entire farm under conservation easements means that it will stay in agriculture, that there won't be a, a Walmart or a truck stop at our farm, which is very important. Thanks to Mike Lesseter and Matthew Lohr for giving us some insights into the priorities of the NRCS as it heads into its 85th year of supporting America's farmers and ranchers in their voluntary conservation efforts. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series available. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Mike Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.